Chinese President Xi Jinping sees the United States as the primary adversary and rival of the People's Republic of China. His intention is to end America's tenure as global leader and to begin his nation's tenure as global ruler. Until recently, most people in the West didn't understand that. Actually, many still do not. A few scholars are investigating the means by which Xi and the Chinese Communist Party are attempting to realize their ambitions. Emily de la Bruyere is a senior fellow here at FDD focusing on China. She has pioneered novel data collection and analysis tools tailored to Beijing's strategic and institutional structures. She has extensive Chinese language research and program management experience. Nathan Pekarsik also is a senior fellow at FDD who studies China, in particular, Beijing's impact across key economic and military areas. They're the authors of a new report, Made in Germany, Co-opted by China. I'm pleased to have them with us today. I'm pleased you're here too on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Okay, guys, first, do you agree with my introduction? And let me just elaborate a bit. I would argue that there's a significant distinction between leading and ruling, being the global leader and being the global ruler. Now, I'm not saying the U.S. has never bullied other countries, uh, but I am saying that the U.S. has made a serious effort to establish an international rules-based order, to abide by those rules even when inconvenient, and that the U.S. has compromised. I'll give you an example. When the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in 1948, it includes not just what we Americans consider unalienable rights, but also rights that were promulgated rhetorically, at least, maybe at most, by Soviet authorities and other socialists. The United Nations certainly is not an organization ruled by the U.S., even though the U.S. pays the lion's share of its bills. Emily, you do start the conversation on this basis. I mean, I'd absolutely agree. It's the difference between rule of law and rule by law. The U.S. helped to lead the establishment of a global system that admittedly does benefit the U.S., but the U.S. still holds itself to those regulations and to that system. And that system ranks above the U.S. in terms of its influence and power, which is precisely the reason that China can co-opt it. What China wants to do is rule by law to create a system that allows it to project its power and project its coercive influence and in which it is not held to any obligations that it doesn't want to be held to. Okay, that's very good. That's clear. Nate, you might want to weigh in on this and particularly elaborate a little bit 
on what China is attempting to accomplish broadly geopolitically? Yeah, I think I would echo Emily's framing of rule of vice by law and frame the competition further from the Chinese conception as one that is zero sum. This is not a non-zero sum cooperative game where all boats are rise by um, a rising tide. Um, China sees this as zero sum, that there will be one sun in the sky and that they are seeking that position. Um, What they gain from seeking this position is the ability to deny um, adversaries like the United States as they see fit and the ability to prevent anyone else from denying China um, necessary goods, necessary positioning um, and necessary leverage vis-a-vis the global system. You guys write, I'll go back to you on this, Emily, that China wants to win what you call the fourth industrial revolution. Um, You better tell people what the first three were, and then describe what the fourth is that China wants to win. I have to do a history lesson here. Nate, you can do the history. (laughs) I'll do the fourth industrial revolution. (laughs) Well, Nate tries to remember what the other three are. (laughs) The fourth industrial revolution is that we have this great advance and a new global system that's being brought about by information technology. And that's going to create an entirely new way of conducting business, conducting our lives and developing industry with new set of rules and foundational systems. And this change gives China an opportunity because as Beijing sees it, when you have moments of flux like this, the incumbent loses many of its traditional advantages and the challenger can, as China puts it, leapfrog. And so that's why this is the golden window for China to jump in and try to reclaim and seize the international system because it's being rewritten. And then the next beat from there is that if Beijing can establish its lead now in the rewriting of the rules, it risks being able to acquire enduring control because the system it becomes subordinate to China. Mm-hmm. And Nate, you remember what the other earlier industrial revolutions were? Steam, electricity, electronics, um, and then bringing us to today. It, what I think is important to, to understand about what these previous eras, you know, how we're defining these previous eras and how they're um, mm. eating into the one that Emily's defining for in terms of the fourth industrial revolution is that these are all drawing on strengths inherent in the real economy, the physical production of goods. And even this fourth industrial revolution, and particularly in the Chinese conception and definition of it, focuses around the industrial internet of things um, and cyber physical systems. So the overlap of the real and the virtual economies and in the world of a world to be defined by AI, et cetera, we lose sight of the the real economy and the physical piece of this of this puzzle, um, and I think the Chinese system very much has has not lost sight of that reality, and I think it does play a big part in the value that they see and aim to seize from engagement with Germany. I'm going to come back to the buzzwords because I want to, I want to make sure people understand the terminology, even things like AI, artificial intelligence, and what that means. But I'm going to but here's an, another longish question, and and that is this: I look I like to think that. Those who listen to this podcast may be of diverse ideological and political persuasions uh, that they think, you know, I'll listen, maybe I'll agree, maybe I won't. 
And with that in mind, I would guess that some listeners may be thinking at this point, oh, you know, maybe we're being too hard on China's rulers. I mean, sure, they want to stay in power. Sure, they want to be a global power. They want to prosper. Uh, but they still must answer the people of China. You may recall that's essentially what Mike Bloomberg told uh, Margaret Hoover uh, when she interviewed him on, on her show. Others think, well, okay, maybe China does want to be the most important uh, nation in the world in this century. But what's the problem? We believe in competition. So let them compete with us. What's the problem? Uh, Emily, I want both of you to weigh in. Take one of those questions or whatever strikes you about, about that. And then I'll go to you, Nick. I think you can divide the danger into a how it is that China competes and their distortive and unfair relationship to the global system and b what it is they're trying to achieve. And we can start with what it is they're trying to achieve. And that's that this is an authoritarian regime that is very explicitly trying to project its control um, and its lack of norms over the global system. And if there's any doubt about that, I mean, we have only the past six months to look at and to see that this is a, an authoritarian regime that's exterminating a religious minority in Xinjiang and has been doing so for years, that has already done so with any number of other minorities over the, the past decade. In particular, I would, I would note, yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is a practice playbook that they finish on Tibet, they apply to Xinjiang, and that just keeps going to any population that China sees as undesirable or threatening. And it doesn't stop at China's borders. It extends to Hong Kong, where they topple a democracy and the next beat being Taiwan. And it doesn't end there either because this is a global ambition. So that's the world we risk being in if China controls the systems of the global order. Um, but then the next, to add insult to injury, is how it is that Beijing gets there. And we're going to go to Nate for that. <laughs> okay, Nate, it's you. Um, I, uh, I'm not exactly sure the, what the cue here is, but I think the, the thing that's compelling and problematic and unique about this threat, um, I think relative to any um, in history, is the way that the approach is able to lock in gains. So this digital authoritarianism that Emily's defining as being used to surveil and um, eliminate populations within China, used to control populations in Hong Kong, um, it's not a it's not a you know a sunk cost. This isn't uh, an imperial expense. In fact, the global system today treats this approach as something that can be profit-making. Um, so this means that the gain that they make in any real territorial sense um, does not end up being a, you know, a, an expense on their ledger. It ends up being something that fuels itself and fuels continued expanse. Um, and I think that's perhaps you know, a, a piece that we have yet to, to fully understand and um, appreciate in terms of how this will continue to grow from the hotspots that we see now, the, the near-term threats that we're you know, waking up to in real time. Um, but there's this real risk that we're waking up to them too late because the next beat is already underway. And yeah. I'd also yeah. add, it's not just that there's a competition underway and China's winning the competition. The other point is that it's cheating. Mm -hmm. And this is evident in the Germany case, where so much of China's relationship with Germany is about acquiring technology from elsewhere. And this has been the Chinese strategy, really, since the inception of the 
PRC, which is that you develop the resources you need to take over the world order by siphoning the world order's resources. It's everything from stealing technology to gaming international organizations so that they serve China's interests. Somebody might say, okay, you say they're breaking the rules, but, you know, it's very Western centric of you to say there are rules. Who said there are rules in the world? Who made the rules? Who enforces the rules? China is saying, you want to abide by rules, you can abide by rules. We're not buying, but abiding by any rules. In wars, you don't abide by many rules. Of course, the Geneva Convention, we all, we, but these are all Western concepts that you apply to competitions, whether kinetic, warlike, or peaceful, various rules, and everybody's supposed to abide by them. They say, no, this is about winning. Success is the only is the only earthly judge of right and wrong, and we don't believe there's a heavenly judge of right and wrong. So go ahead and play by your rules. We don't. Sorry, Charlie. And Cliff, you just spelled out better than anybody else has what the U.S. strategy should be for responding to China's threat. We need to recognize that this is a competition and it's literally all about winning. And if that's the case, you compete. Right. All right. I want to go through a few terms because they'll come up in this conversation and we're going to get to Germany in a minute. I know I'm taking a long time to get there, but I think it's useful because uh, these terms, people listening may or may not be familiar or they may have heard them, but they may not really know what they meant. We talked about the fourth industrial revolution, and I think you give a good view of what that is. I'm not sure in our conversation, I know it's in your report, if you mentioned um, the phrase that everybody's heard, a lot of people don't quite get, the internet of things or the internet of everything, I think is the way you, you phrase it there. Go ahead, Nate. What's the internet of everything? So this term, uh, I think we're correctly dating back to Chinese sources and not to Western sources. Um, and the idea is that as bandwidth and connectivity increases, we'll increasingly have connectivity between real devices. So people to devices and devices to devices. So you can think of examples being um your cell phone, um, you can think of examples being your refrigerator, who you know, which might be able to order its own um, replenishment soon. You can think about autonomous driving and smart cities um, being additional examples. So it's an increase in, in bandwidth and connectivity that permits um, an internet of things, so real devices that are able to talk to each other and able to talk and interact with you. And so if you, if you control the internet of things, you control everything. You control things going on in my house, in my car, in my office, um, this podcast, whatever. In theory, that's what we're talking about, controlling everything. Yes. And the the Chinese strategists who discuss the internet of everything frame this as the next evolution of the, the first internet, the one that we interact with in our computer browsers. And they look back on that innovation as one that the United States influenced and redeemed tremendous value from. And they see this emerging internet of everything as the next competition that they can define and redeem as much value from. Right. Emily, here's another term that's important. You use a lot. It's in the report. We've talked about it, I think, uh, on the on podcast before. It's a Chinese term, military civil fusion. Military civil fusion is a national level Chinese strategy that dates back actually in terms of its theory to Mao's strategic thinking. Um, and its present manifestation, military civil fusion refers to the idea that military and civilian resources, actors, 
and ambitions are fused together into a comprehensive vision of national power. So this means, for example, that technology obtained in the civilian domain can then be translated in the Chinese system, ideally into military relevant capabilities. But in a broader sense, it also refers to the idea that when China deploys ostensibly commercial actors into the international system for strategic ends, they're furthering the Chinese vision of power projection. Even though they're not aircraft carriers or bases, this is about establishing positions of influence and potentially coercive leverage within the international system. And this gives a particular advantage because we do not have this. If you think of the major American corporations, whether it's General Motors or IBM or Amazon or Google, they are not working to give us a stronger military. On the contrary, what we often see is that they're saying, hey, we do not want to cooperate with the government or the military in any way that would be a violation of our ethics and principles. We can't, we can't help you guys with this. You're, you're on your own. Meanwhile, China's got these two, the military and its corporations that are, in theory, independent. They may argue they're independent, fused. That's what we're talking about. Exactly. And that also means, though, that if you have a U.S. company, say, or a multinational company that doesn't want to be associated with the U.S. military, but then goes and has a partnership in China, if it's then connecting to the military civil fusion system, whether or not it realizes it risks serving the interests of the People's Liberation Army, even though it refuses to be in any way affiliated with the Pentagon. Right, right, right. So our companies are actually being uh, being brought into this 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 military civil fusion system in China. Okay, um, a phrase in, in, that you use a lot is "their China." Again, Chinese made in China, twenty twenty five. The idea that they want loads of things to be by by twenty twenty five to be made in China. Networks of exchange. What's that mean? This is the idea that um, increasingly. Um, competition commercially and economically is no longer about individual companies or individual goods, but rather about the process by which information, goods, services are exchanged. And oftentimes these occur in networks, which um, are at once a kind of nebulous, um, non-concrete term, but are also in some cases very real and tangible, um, and they come with their own sort of definitional terms, conditions, and modes of operation. So the simple idea is that um, economic interaction now is not necessarily the simple bilateral um, type of dynamic that it was prior to information technology revolution um, and the emergence of the internet and increasingly the emergence of the industrial internet of things. Okay, I got two more terms. Um, again, a Chinese term, more than term, the quote, go out, close quote, strategy. What's that, Emily? The go out strategy, this is one of the most longstanding guiding strategies in China's industrial policy, but also global presence more broadly. And this refers to the Chinese central government push to have companies and really all sorts of Chinese players, quote unquote, go out into the international system. First, to obtain resources from the international system, and second, to cement positions of influence within it. And that overarching umbrella is what drives the litany of other Chinese state plans that you hear tossed around all the time, whether that's Belt and Road, which is like an operationalization of go out, 
or for example, Made in China 2025, which spells out key industrial priorities within the larger go-out framework. Right, right. Okay, last one. And this is win-win cooperation. Now, that doesn't really require explanation, except to say, which I think you have, that when the Chinese talk about a win-win cooperation, it's deceptive. They're relying on uh, credulous people in, in the U.S. or in Europe who think, oh, great, they want to be our friends and buddies. We'll all do better. And by the way, this was the belief and has been the belief for decades um, on the right and the left among Republicans and conservatives, all of whom thought we're engaging the Chinese, we're bringing them into the international system, they're going to see the benefits of partnership, they will agree with us that we can have a win-win uh, cooperation relationship, we don't need to be competitors, rivals, we don't need to have animosity, we can all get along, can't we? That's that's really what, what it's about, yes? Go ahead, Emily. Absolutely. And then you have another more specific manifestation of win-win cooperation, which is this idea that foreign companies should partner with Chinese companies because the Chinese company wins by getting technology and the foreign company wins by getting access to the Chinese market. Except that, of course, it turns out that whole Chinese market promise never actually pans out. And the Chinese company gets the technology and then the Chinese company also gets the Chinese market. Okay. So, and and let me just put this forward and you correct me if I'm wrong, feel free. One is what we're looking at here is an industrial policy on steroids, but it's also a military industrial policy. What we're looking at here has been termed uh, neo-imperialism, but it's really imperialism 2.0 because it's a whole new concept of of how one one does what imperialism strives to do, which is to control foreign lands, foreign resources, foreign populations, the British, the French, the Portuguese, um, the Ottoman Empire. Never quite conceived it this way. I'm tempted to say this cleverly. Nate, did I say anything that you'd say not, Cliff? You got that all wrong? No, I think that's absolutely right. And um, again, I'll, I'll draw back to the crux of the information technology revolution as a distinguishing feature of this approach to imperial reach and process. Um, And I I think a lot of that is best summed up by the idea that there's not an expense involved here. The way that China has engaged with the system, um, it's it's profit-making in many cases over the time horizon that that China's setting for itself. Um, And I think there's, there's also the distinction that the size and scope of the Chinese economy means that this industrial policy is a threat to lock in its gains in a way that no other ever has been. Um, So what Emily defined in terms of China being able to protect its own market, if China protects its own market and doesn't allow competition within its market, it is by definition then drawing from this colossal base that provides an economy of scale, provides it a network effect, depending on what application we're talking about here. Um, But it provides it this this structural advantage that um, given the way that economies function today um, is really hard to erode or compete against from any other position. Okay, it's time to turn to Germany, which is what your report does. Yuri, why, why has Beijing focused its attention on Germany? Uh, Emily, go ahead and start. As you already laid out for us, China sees the world in a determinative competition. 
and China wants to win. And this is the third or the fourth or however you count it world war from Beijing's perspective. And China sees Europe as the determinative battlefield of this world war. And as Beijing sees it, Germany is the linchpin to Europe. If you can get Germany, you get Europe. If you get Europe, you get the world. Okay, that, that's pretty clear. Um, you also talk, I'll go to you, Nate, about Sino-German ties moving from, quote, mutually beneficial to competitive and predatory. Now, come again, competitive sounds like a challenge, not a threat, but predatory sounds like a threat, not a challenge. The, this, this harkens back to the win-win dynamic, and it will cooperate. It will cooperate up until the point that it has redeemed as much value as it needs on the technological front or in terms of access to advanced markets. And then it turns into a much more competitive and adversarial approach. Um, and I think we're seeing the emergence of that more aggressive, assertive behavior globally and certainly in, in Germany. So the next question I have, which I think which follows logically, is to, to what extent is Germany aware of all this and, 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 and separate from that, what extent is Germany responding? Now, they're somewhat aware because you've just published your report. They're getting copies of it. We know we have our, we have our sources and methods that they're, that, that, that they're seeing it, that they're reading it. Doesn't mean they're necessarily saying, yeah, that's right. What, 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 what if anything, do you know about how, about how Germany sees this problem or do they even get that they have a problem? As with the rest of the global system, there is a growing recognition from Germany that China represents a competitive threat or even a predatory threat. And there has been growing concern in recent years about Chinese investment, technological theft, and information infrastructure, including 5G, which is a hot button issue everywhere. The problem is that even if you accept the long-term threat of China's approach in the immediate or short term, it's very difficult to say no. And in the fragmented systems that define Germany as well as the US, it's you're going to be hard pressed to keep Beijing from getting an angle in because they can get in through the private sector really in any capacity. And because right now in many areas, there just isn't an alternative. So even if there's a recognition of this threat, to actually be able to respond to it, there has to be a positive alternative and there has to be one that offers some degree of immediate reward and that has something akin to scale and the scope of China's approach. You know, I, I mean, two things that come to mind. One is I don't see Angela Merkel taking these kinds of threats terribly seriously. We know that, for example, um, Nord Stream 2, which is this project to bring in uh, gas from Russia um, that the U.S. objects to because it should make Germany uh, much more dependent on Russia. Um, she wants to go ahead with it, and, and, and the this national security uh, dimensions don't seem to be weighing heavily on, on her. And um, I would argue, I think a lot of other people would, that Germany is the most powerful and richest nation in Europe is not contributing adequately to collective security in general or to NATO enough. That's been a fight between President Trump and Angela Merkel. But it's also true that independent companies in free and democratic societies will make their own decisions. The government doesn't call them up and just tell them, here's what you're going to do. FDD is 
<laughs> understood this. This is one of the reasons we argue that American sanctions would work against the Islamic Republic of Iran, even if the governments of Europe were opposed to those sanctions, because the various corporations said, I'm not risking my relations with the U.S. by investing money into the government. But the Chinese get this too. They're smart. And they can see that even if the German government recognizes this as a threat, they can begin to, and in fact, they have, and this brings in Huawei, among other things, uh, which is a very important company. You should explain. People know something about this. That Wabi has, you know, set up, a, as you write, an innovation center in Dusseldorf, and and Huawei won the North Rhine-Westphalia Investment Award, which honors foreign companies that have made outstanding contributions to the state. Uh, this, this is what's going on here. The government and the private sector are unable to see the problem collectively and come and, and concur on what the problem is and what might be done. And that's part of it too, is the framing of the problem is we consistently put China's threat in terms of a national security threat. And that puts it purely into the purview of the government sector, but also makes it feel like it's, there's a tension between that security threat and economic opportunity. But the thing is, China's a threat industrially and economically, as well as security-wise. So it's not that you're trading maybe you know, a privacy concern for an economic advantage. You're giving up an economic advantage, and you're giving up industrial advantage, as well as your data control. And that's just something in our framing of international competition that has to be resolved before there can actually be concerted response, especially on the part of a country like Germany that so prioritizes its industrial and its economic health. Nate, here, here's a quote from your report. Maybe you'll just elaborate on it a little bit. You say, you and Emily write, China uses theft, centralization, and non-market incentives to establish partnerships through which Berlin's advanced capabilities prop up Beijing's champions. You may need to explain what a champion is. China also deliberately encourages the dependence of German actors to cement such one-sided arrangements even after the malign behavior is revealed. There is no sign of this changing. Yeah, I think the, the best sort of mechanism or mean of the Chinese industrial policy planning apparatus that exemplifies this is the practice of forced technology transfer. Um, so the non-market incentive that the Chinese companies offer to their German peers would be that they'll permit German actors access to the billion customers that exist in the Chinese market in exchange for favorable licensing terms to technology or in exchange for co-production rights um, within China, which are followed through on by the German actors to build production facilities within Beijing's borders to cooperate with a Chinese peer um, who typically, as we've talked through already, will harvest technology, will cooperate up until the point that they no longer need to because they can leverage their own enduring advantages in terms of low-cost labor, in terms of regulatory arbitrage and disregard for environmental or occupational standard, occupational safety standards um, to produce a competing product for less money um, and be able to compete on cost domestically within China, but then increasingly to compete on cost globally as they export. Um, so I think it's this, the allure of the Chinese market is one of these most compelling um, non-market features, quite frankly, that they use this pressure to attract technology, harvest it, and then 
use it in an adversarial fashion over a longer term time horizon. You guys have also, at the, at the end of your report, come up with three policy recommendations uh, to uh, confront this, this 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 threat. Why don't you, Emily, you take the first, Nate, take the second, and we'll go back to you, Emily, for the third. Go ahead, Emily. One of the prime mechanisms that we think is critical for responding to China's predatory behavior in Germany, but also in Europe and in the United States is creating some sort of multilateral response because no country is going to be able to respond to it on its own. And right now the traditional methods we have for multilateral response risk being subverted by China. So we think that NATO as a group should be reoriented around the competition with China in both the military domain and in the economic and industrial ones. Um, Because this is an organization that brings together allies and partners that already exists and that has a competitive mandate. So it could be repurposed for precisely this threat. Nate, second recommendation. So the, uh, an additional element of having a multilateral response revolves around the particular instruments that are at the disposal of the U.S. government as well as the German government and other allies and partners. Um, a set of these concern investment screening, so foreign investment screening. In the United States, we have something that gets referred to as the CFIUS process, which reviews for national security concerns, foreign investments into critical technologies and companies in the United States. There are similar types of investment screening processes that exist across the EU um, and in Germany. There's a need to coordinate those types of processes, to coordinate the definitions that are used for what's an eligible investment to be screened, um, and to share information about the screening mechanisms across countries. Um, And there's also a need for pairing this type of measure with uh, a comparable set of tools concerning export control. So um, another way that we can cut off Chinese access to critical technologies is to use national security justifications to prohibit the export of X, Y, or Z technology to China. Um, But if we do that unilaterally, if just the U.S. controls export of a given technology, then the incentives actually increase for the German competitors or or peers of a U.S. company to instead step in and replace um, this piece of technology that China can't get from the U.S. So there's a clear need to have collective action on this front as well. And given the way that China has developed their technology acquisition system, um, there's a need for investment screening to coordinate and talk to the export control process as well. Um, So there's an information sharing of these existing tools that we would really like to see both in the United States. I think in the U.S. this needs to be improved, but then also in a multilateral fashion in Europe. And Emily, last recommendation. The narrative needs to change and there needs to be better information. This applies to what we just talked about in terms of the framework for the competition. China competes in a different way and not just in the military domain. And China's like precise strategy vis-a-vis Europe and Germany in particular needs to be something that's well-documented and shared. And then on a more tactical level, the investments China makes, their connections to state, the state and state tra- strategy and the other elements of its industrial positioning and leverage all require a larger documentation and information campaign that should be jointly undertaken by the U.S. and Germany as a cooperative effort. 
Emily and Nate, you've shed light on an enormously consequential problem and threat. You've shown the way to defend the West. We'll see if we can get Western governments to act in their own interests. And we'll talk to you about this and other subjects again soon. Until then, thanks for the good work you're doing. And thanks to all of you who are joining this conversation. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.